All right, I want to uh, start with a question this morning. Besides your brain, which is the most powerful member of your body or organ in your body, what is the most powerful member other than the brain? Second question, what's the most dangerous member? What's the most dangerous member in your body? Those are really important questions to know. You need to figure that out. I, I figured it out pretty early because my mom kind of told me. She said, John, you need to really be careful what you say. Because, because God has given you a very powerful tongue. And, and you can either bless people or you can destroy people. And, and that, that, that just made me stand still. And like, because she realized that for me, the most powerful and the most dangerous was my tongue. And that's what James says, right? I mean, James says for all of us, the tongue is like a forest fire. The tongue is like a rudder of a ship. It can set the whole pattern for your life. But, but that's not true of everybody, right? I mean, we all have different members of the body that represent danger to us, that, that represent us ultimately sinning, disobeying, being rebellious and being lawless towards God. So, so today, that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about, and, and, and by the way, even though I know that my tongue is dangerous, I still sin with it. That's where the struggle comes in. The struggle comes in is, is God going to rule over the members of my body? Or is this, this alien, this, this nature that wants to do its own thing, what the Scripture calls the sin nature, is it going to be victorious in my life? And, and that has to do with me allowing either God <laughs> or the flesh, this, this alien sin nature, to rule in my life. So I want to read, starting off, Romans 6, 11 through 14. And remember this from, from the beginning of Romans chapter 5 now all the way through the middle of Romans chapter 8. We're talking about eliminating the power of sin in our lives. What theologians call sanctification. And sanctification is just a long theological word for us 
becoming the people that God intended for us to be. God had in mind something for us to be when he created us in the beginning. That, that plan was thrown awry because we didn't believe God. We turned against God. But God made it possible for us to come back to him and, and essentially he saved us. He justified us which allowed us to then begin the process of becoming the people that God intended for us to be. But to become the person that God meant for you to be, it's not like, it's not like a trip down the yellow brick road. It is a struggle. And we all feel that struggle. But we can be victorious. We can be victorious. There is something that you need to know is that the penalty of sin has been taken care of. You never have to worry about that again. Now we're in the process. This is the process you're in. If you've come to Jesus Christ, if he has become your Savior and Lord, he has to become your Lord. He has to become your Master. Now, because he is your Lord and Master, you can actually experience breaking the power of sin. So let me read Romans 6, 11 through 14. Three verses. Don't get excited, though. I've got 13 points. So here's the three verses. And, and I would just encourage you to commit these to memory. I would encourage you to really study Romans 6 and 7. Because Romans 6 and 7, you know, there are times when you're reading it. I've, I've heard, I was telling my wife yesterday, I've heard preachers preach on this and in the middle of their preaching get lost. <laughs> because because these, these verses in Romans 6 and 7, you've, you've really got to absorb them. You've really got to dig into them. But if you'll dig into them, the struggle that you're in, you can regularly begin to experience victory in your life. And that's what we're all after, right? We're all after. If we have come to Christ, what we want to experience more than anything else is victorious living. So here we go. Romans 6, 11 through 14. I referred to it in the kids' message this morning. So you must Consider, so, so you also, so then, you also must consider. How, how many of you grew up in a church where you use the King James? Anybody? Right, so you know what this word is, consider, right? It was the kid's word for this morning. What was it? Reckon. They don't use reckon in the Midwest, I don't think. They use it in the South a lot, but it doesn't mean the same thing. In the South, they say, I reckon I'm going to go to town. And what they mean by that is, I suppose I'm going to go to town. This is something entirely different. So you also must, you must do this. If you want to experience victory, you must consider 
yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Before, by the way, it was reversed. <laughs> you, were, you were alive to sin and you were dead to God. You, you see how it's been flipped? Let not sin therefore, now look at this word, it's really important. Let not sin therefore reign. So we're talking about ruling. We're talking about a monarch, a king. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. See the word instruments there? You know what it really is? It's weapons. <laughs> it's weapons. And, and that should signal to you that this struggle is genuine warfare. And, and, and here's how the, the sin nature works. It turns those weapons back on you. And when you come to Christ, those weapons get turned around and you begin to be in, in the service of the commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. Your members to God as, as weapons for righteousness. You, you and your members, <laughs> your hands, your eyes, your brain... Every member of your body, and you, you can put together that list. Every member of your body now becomes useful as a weapon for righteousness. Because when you use your members as the way that they're supposed to be used, other people who don't know how to use those instruments, they say, oh, <laughs> that's what it's supposed to look like. And God uses you in this struggle. For sin, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. I'm going to explain that one next week. In 6 and 7, there really are two obstacles, and it's very strange. There are two obstacles for you to become who God intended for you to be, for you to experience sanctification, for you to experience victory. One is sin, and here's what's really odd. The other one is the law. The law. But today we're just going to talk about sin. So I've got, some, I've got some questions. I told you I have 13 points. I'm going to go through this quickly. Normally I talk. I don't read a lot. But if I, but if I don't read these 13 points... We won't get out till 1 o'clock. So, so bear with me as I go through these 13 points. It's just to bring all of us up to the place 
so that you can fully understand Romans 6, 11 through 14. So, a series of questions. What is sin? The Bible describes sin as lawlessness, lawlessness, and rebellion against God. How do people sin? People sin in three ways. Three kinds of people that express their sin. And they express it. It's all sin, but all comes under the category of sin, but it's expressed in three ways. Number one, outright defiance. <laughs> you know those people, right? There's, it's just outright defiance. No, I'm not going to do it. Nobody can tell me what to do. Then, then there are two more subtle forms of sin. The first one is hypocritical moral superiority. These are people, by the way, that sin with their minds and with their tongues, mostly. Because, because they're looking around at others, because they, they have a moral code, and they look at others, and when others don't live up to that moral code, they say first to themselves, and then probably in gossip to somebody else, I can't believe they did that. I would never do that. The third is, and this is even more subtle. See, there's, there's the outright defiance, then there's the, the subtle moralist, and then finally, there's the, there's the person who sins by religious practice and pride. You know, all the religions of the world, all the religions of the world operate this way. I, I can live up to God's standards, and God will have to accept me because I try to follow the rules. And I've got these traditions, and I've got a long family history, and I'm part of this group, and, and we have an inside track to God. So, so all of those three, the, the defiant, the moralist, the religious person, they all sin, but they all sin in different ways. But it's still sin. And here's what Paul concludes. There is none righteous, no, not one. None of them. You won't find, you won't find, you'll find them in the bar and you'll find them in the church. But they're all part of this group called sinners. What is the result of sin? All people are under the wrath of God and they're helpless to do anything about it on their own. We said this before, God demands perfection. Our best attempts at righteousness are useless and only produce death. And here's what you conclude. When, you, when that truth finally hits you, here's, here's the conclusion. I need help. <laughs> what does it mean to need help? I need a Savior. Number four, a Savior has come for us. He lived a perfect, sinless life and died a sacrificial death for the sins of all people. 
He was born as a human so that he could die for us. He was declared to be the Son of God with power when he was raised from the dead, so his righteousness is unlimited. As a man, he could die for us. As God, he was raised from the dead with power, with, with infinite capacity, so that, so that his righteousness that he gives, the payment that he makes is unlimited. There's an old song that used to go like this. There's enough of God's love for anyone, anywhere. There's enough of God's love for everyone, everywhere. If the love of God could reach the heart of every man, now listen to this, there would still be enough to do it again. You know what that means? God could have saved me a number of times. He had that much capacity through Jesus Christ. But his work of righteousness is so powerful, he only had to save me once. Five, how do we get this righteousness? God offers it by his grace and we receive it by faith. Just as Abraham received it by believing the promise of God, that God could bring life out of death. Remember, we went through that. The illustration of faith is Abraham. Abraham was well past the ability to give life. God told him, I'm going to give you a son, and that son is going to bless the nations. And here's what it says, and Abraham believed God. That's it. So as the people of God, if we're going to be like Abraham, we have to believe God. Because that's the original sin. The original sin is Adam and Eve didn't believe God. As Abraham received it by believing the promise of God that God could bring life out of death, we believe that God can do the same for us. And when we believe that, God declares us to be justified. <laughs> Not guilty. Paid in full. By the way, when Jesus hung on the cross and as he gave up his spirit, the last thing he said was what? It is finished. You know how that actually translates? Paid in full. Paid in full. What happens when God justifies us? We have peace with God. This is what we talked about last week. We, we talked about it, we didn't finish it, so I'm going to finish it now in this statement. You're going to have to go home and study it more. What happens when God justifies us? We have peace with God, so we're no longer under his wrath. <laughs> we have peace with God. It's not a feeling, it's a reality. God looks at us as, looks at us as his friends, as his children. We now have God's favor. And then we have open access to his favor anytime. I'm so glad that grace doesn't have office hours, aren't you? Like we close at six. Because <laughs> there's a lot of times I wake up in the middle of the night and I cry out to God and I say, I need your favor. And I start praying. Amazing thing happens. I start praying, and next thing you know, it's morning. 
I don't finish many of those prayers. But I have open access to God. You do too. Open access to God, and we learn to rejoice in the Lord. Why do we learn to rejoice in the Lord? Because we begin to see life through God's eyes. I'm no longer, I'm no longer looking. I'm not even looking at you anymore through John Bell's eyes. I'm, I'm looking at you through God's eyes. And you know what I see? I see people that God loves dearly and longs to be who He created them to be. We also rejoice in our suffering. Why do we rejoice in our suffering? We didn't get to this. Because something comes out of suffering now. You know, when, when unbelievers suffer, they almost suffer uselessly, right? Because even if, even if, you know, they say, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. Yeah, but for what, 70 years? <laughs> it, that's it. That's the effect of it making you stronger. But for the believer, it's not just this life. It's for eternity. And here's what happens. We, we experience perseverance. Have you ever done something hard you didn't want to do? And you were kind of dreading it, and you went ahead and did it, and afterwards you, what'd you, what'd you think? It was like, wow. <laughs> I made it through. I made it through. Perseverance, that's the mark of the believer's life. God is building in us this, this quality of perseverance. And then perseverance leads to something. It leads to proven character. You know what proven character is? It means you're not a fake. Everybody has doubts about their salvation. Do you know that? Some more than others. But when you, when you go through trials and you persevere and you come out the other side with your character, you know what you say? <laughs> this is real. This is real. Because if it wasn't real, I wouldn't be here. The Apostle John says, they went out from us because they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. Perseverance, proven character. And then finally he says, what comes from perseverance and proven character? Hope. <laughs> hope. And then, and then when there's hope, the Holy Spirit inside of you shares with you the love of God. And Galatians says, here's what he says, when you go through that, the Holy Spirit's word for you, and you'll sense it in you if you're a true believer, the Holy Spirit will say to you, He's your Father. Abba, Father. That's the presence. You, you really have the presence of the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Where did, the, where did sin in the human race come from? It came from one man. That's what Romans 5 is all about. It came from one man, our federal head. Why does Paul bring this up? Because as one man brought death to the race, one man, Jesus, brought life to humanity. All were made sinners through Adam, and we can all be made righteous through Christ. Number eight. can't believe we've gotten this far. Because we are justified, the penalty of sin is taken away. 
But now that leads us to the second stage of what it means to be saved. We are to move on to sanctification when the power of sin in our lives is taken away. I said this before. There are two things that make us struggle to break the power of sin in our lives. Sin and the law. Let's talk about sin. Number nine. In Romans 6, 1 through 7, Paul uses the term sin. So, so from 6, 1 to 7, 13, Paul uses the, the term or the word sin 25 times. <laughs> 25 times. Only one of those times, chapter 6, verse 15, only one of those times refers to an act of sin. The rest, the rest of the time the word sin is used, it refers to a spiritual disposition or nature. See, when you're born, you're born with a disposition to disobey God. Romans 1 takes it so far as to say you are born as a God-hater. That's the disposition you're born with. It's not what you were supposed to be. It's just what you are. And it came into the human race through one man because the whole human race was in his seed. And all of us have descended from this one man. And we all have this corrupting influence inside of us. As Paul speaks of sin as a spiritual disposition, he personifies it. That's what he does. He He turns sin in chapter 6 and 7 into a personality. He uses this figure of speech to make difficult spiritual truth more understandable. This person, this person that he's describing, this personification that he's describing, is not just anyone. This person is a ruler. He's a monarch. He's a king who orders unregenerated human subjects. Unregenerated means they have not come to life in God. We're born born alive to sin and dead to God. And that is called being unregenerated. To be regenerated means to be born again. To come to life. He is a ruler, a king, who orders unregenerated human subjects to offer their bodies to fulfill his demands. Isn't that interesting? Do you know what what the evil one wants? You know what Satan wants? You know what your sin nature is after? It is after the same thing that God is after. It wants to capture your personality and all the members of your body to serve him. And, and we're helpless. <laughs> Why? Because we're slaves. We're slaves to sin. That's what Paul, you used to be slaves to sin. So, so here's how it works in very simple terms. Somebody cuts me off or somebody hurts me. And my old nature says, give me your tongue. <laughs> and I say, I'm going to count to ten. I'm not going to say anything. 
and I count to 10, and then I let them have it. See, in, when I'm unregenerated, I'm on my own. And on my own, he is the ruler and I am the subject. All humans are born with a spiritual disposition. We are helpless to overcome his demands. When we receive Christ, number 11, when we receive Christ, we receive a new king. That's, that's why when Jesus is referred to, he is always referred to as the Lord. He's the king. Jesus, that's his humanity. Christ, the Messiah. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. You are asked not to receive a Savior, even though he is a Savior. You are asked to receive a Lord when we receive Christ, we receive a new king, a new ruler. We are immersed. <laughs> Paul talks about it in chapter 6, verse 3. Immersed, which is the word baptized. And we're not talking about water here. There's no water here. This is not the work of a pastor pouring water or, or immersing you in water. This is the work of the Holy Spirit who immerses you at the moment of your salvation. And we are baptized into the death. There is a sense in which this really happens. These are not just theological teachings. Something really happened. When you, when you said yes to the promises of God, that you would believe that God could bring life out of death, that he could give you eternal life and take away all of your sins through Jesus Christ. When you believe that, you didn't see it. You may not even have felt it, but at that moment, the Holy Spirit took you and transported you back in time. <laughs> can you imagine that? The, oh, the Holy Spirit can do that. He's not limited like, like we are. And you know what he did? He took us back to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, and he marched us up on that cross, and he, and he attached us to Jesus and to that cross, and we experienced the death of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ was dying to sin. He was dying not for his own sins, but for our sins. And, and the Holy Spirit attached us to that cross. Then he led us. Then he led us to the tomb. And when Jesus was taken away and buried, we were buried with him. And you know what that meant? That meant that the old John Bell was gone. The person I was born with this, with this disposition that was hostile to God, that, that person died. That old nature died. And, and, you know, when you die, <laughs> sin has no dominion over you anymore. And, and when you die, you'll never die again. Just as Jesus was, rose to life to live the life of God, never to die again. When our old self dies, our old ruler loses his power over us. He will continue to try, but he really has lost his power. Remember before I said, when this ruler comes and says, give me your tongue, before you come to Christ, you're helpless. 
He's going to rule. He's going to reign. Now, you know what? When he comes and he says to me, John, give me your tongue. You know what I say? No. I don't have to. I don't belong to you anymore. Here's a strange thing, number 12. The old ruler will even try to capitalize on grace. Here's, here's the perverted thinking, and this is, this is what he does. He's always twisting things. Since more sin produces more grace, why not sin more that grace might increase? That's, the, that's what Paul starts with in chapter 6, verse 1. Well, you know, if, if sin produces grace, why don't you just sin more? And Paul says, <laughs> no, 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 never. And then verse 13, this is a battle, a struggle for your body. We said this before, you have to know this. You were given a physical body to glorify God. Romans chapter 6 is all about, it's all about who's going to control your body. Are you, go, are you, going, to, are you going to allow God to glorify himself in your body? Or are you going to believe the false promises of this nature that really has lost its power but still seeks to pervert you? All right, let's talk about victory. Four, four steps to victory, okay, is how we're going to close. Let me give you this. So we got through 13. Pretty amazing, huh? 13 points. That may be the longest sermon I've ever preached. Well, it's not the longest sermon, but it's the most points. Victory. Victory is how can you win the struggle for your body? Number one, first and foremost, you have to increase your faith. How do you increase your faith? Romans 10, 17. How does faith come to us? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So when I, when I same way, when I, when I heard the message of the gospel, I heard it. I received it. I believed it. I said, yes, that's true. That's how faith increases. So, so listen to these first few verses in chapter 6, and listen to this word. Every time I say the word no, make sure you recognize this is what you're supposed to know. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We talked about that already. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. See, grace to justify us gets us out of jail. Grace to sanctify us gets us into the battle so that we might be victorious. We not only have a different relationship with sin, we have a different relationship with grace. Grace is now making it possible for me to walk in newness of life. Grace delivered me from prison and paid all of my debts. Now, grace functions as an empowerment in me 
to be who God made me to be, to, to give over the members of my body to God. Listen to verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The, the body is not sinful. The body just is the vehicle that sin uses to express itself. That's why it's called the body of sin here. Because, because before you came to Christ, it was a body of sin. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. That's why we died with Christ. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live to God with Him. Verse 9, we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life He lives, He lives to God. And the same thing happened to us. So number one, you must increase your faith. You need to go over the Scriptures to know what you know. To know who you are. To know your identity. Number two, you must exercise your faith. What does it mean to exercise your faith? It means to consider yourselves dead to sin. So it goes like this. Here's the equation. My body minus the sin nature plus the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ equals me glorifying God. That's the equation. That's the calculation. That's how I reckon or consider. So you must exercise your faith. That's what, when you consider yourselves dead to sin, you know what you're doing? You're exercising faith. So when sin comes along with its, with its suggestion for me to do something that satisfies me alone and doesn't glorify God, I say no. I add Christ to the equation. Number three, you must be part of the resistance. <laughs> in, in Europe, in World War II, in all the countries of Europe, there were all these resistance movements. And they, here's what it meant. It meant they didn't go along with the occupying force. You still have sin resident in you, but now you can resist. How do you resist? Three practical suggestions. Number one, keep your distance. Keep your distance. This could be anything from staying away from certain places to shutting off the computer or turning off the television. Sometimes Linda and I are watching a movie and about five minutes into it, we look at each other and we go, I can't watch this crap. This is garbage. Keep your distance. Number two, cut off opportunity. Think ahead. No, I don't think I'll go. I don't think I'll do that. Number three, maintain transparency. Confess your sins to one another. You know, there's a real beauty in me being transparent with you because I'm very open and honest, and, and you're only as healthy as your secrets. So you must be part of the resistance. And then number four, go on the offense. You know what Jesus did when he was attacked by the evil one? He pulled out his sword. 
the sword of the Spirit. And whenever the evil one came at him with a suggestion, turn these stones into bread. That doesn't seem like a big deal. Jesus said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. By the time that exchange was over, Satan was beaten. And that is what is supposed to happen to us. We're supposed to turn what seems like an opportunity for the sin nature, we're supposed to turn it into offense as a victory lap for Jesus Christ. So, back to my original question. What's the most dangerous member of your body? And, and have you submitted it unto the Lord? Have you said, Lord, here's my, here's my hands, here's my feet, here's my eyes, here's my tongue, here's my ears. Take my life and let it be consecrated unto thee. Father, thank you for this morning, for your grace. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to live in defeat. We can live in victory because of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord. We thank you that we fail on our own, but we do succeed with Christ. So help us to be so united, so abiding, so grafted in, that we really live as the new creatures that you've made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.